Are you passionate about social justice and ready to bring about real change as part of your life's work? Have you ever wondered how to bridge the gap between your unique gifts and the world's deepest needs? If so, then I want to welcome you to the Soul of Social Transformation, a podcast designed to help young adults explore vocational possibilities that bring to life our deepest hopes for healing our world. I'm your host, Gary Green, along with my co-host, Justin Sabiotanis, and we are excited to journey with you in this series of conversations that feature six leaders who have discovered and created ways to make meaningful change in their communities. They each bring a wealth of experience and expertise in addressing some of the most critical issues of our time, including racial and economic justice, mental health in marginalized communities, and justice related to native lands and indigenous communities. By highlighting their stories, we hope you will be inspired to find creative ways to translate your passions into concrete action for a better world. Well, I want to welcome uh, Reverend Jim Barrett Jacobs uh, to our podcast tonight. Yes. We're here with Reverend Gary Green and myself and uh, Justin Zabiatanis. We're excited to have this conversation with you. So I-, I wanted to start by inviting you to share a little bit of your story with us. In particular, how did you end up doing social justice work? Is it something you grew up around or something that you came across as a result of your experiences? Yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't really grow up with any kind of race, social consciousness. Um, I grew up in a very fundamentalist Pentecostal evangelical church, um, which was steeped in, in whiteness. Um, You know, it's no surprise that those kind of churches are not socially focused. And so um, the, the, the whole kind of political activism, uh, civil disobedience kind of resistance stuff was never part of my game growing up until 1992. I was a sophomore in high school and I went to high school uh, at Irondale High School, which is a in New Brighton. It's a suburban high school of moderate size. You know, it's yeah. a decent sized high school. I was one of two native kids in my whole, the whole high school, all you know, four grades. Yeah. So all growing up, you know, through high school, it was just me and Casey were the only native kids in this. And 1992 rolls around. And that is the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage and the quote unquote discovering of America. And I remember that off the coast of California, there was a replica Nina Pinta and Santa Maria that were just moored out there in the ocean waiting to make landfall with some white dude in period dress. You know, he's going to come and claim the land again. I remember that one in California specifically, but I, if memory serves me, there were duplicate, like there were other instances that were going to take place along the, the shores and then down in the Caribbean, of course. And that just didn't sit right yeah. with me. And so I thought about it. And I remember as Columbus Day approached, you know, that second Monday in October, uh, back then we did not have Indigenous Peoples Day. Right. No one right. had Indigenous right. Peoples That's Day. Right. It was just Columbus Day. So as that approached, I thought about what am I going to do? Because, you know, for, for us, at least, it was a school day. So we were going to be in school. And I remember... Okay, I'm going to, I got to do something because it's just me and Casey and this 1700 students or whatever. I got the, what I call the most Indian shirt I had, you know, and it wasn't like a, 
traditional shirt. It wasn't ceremony. It was literally the shirt you would find at a South Dakota truck stop. You yeah, know, yeah. there's just a white t-shirt had the black Hills on it. And this kind of ghosted in Indian chief's head floating above the black Hills. Right. Yeah. So total truck stop material, yeah. but it was the most Indian shirt I had. And I put that on. And back then I had my hair long. I tied feathers in my hair. Now I didn't have real Eagle feathers. Right. I had these fake goofy looking you get it at michael's crafts kind of you know (laughs) feathers but it's all i had and i tied them in my hair and i i got a a sheet of paper just an eight by eleven sheet of paper and i wrote uh something like 500 years ago i was not discovered and i taped it to my back and i went around school all day uh like this just kind of making this political statement and you know it it brought on conversation, brought the reporters from the school newspaper, you know, wow. so this is my first time like entering into any kind of media, right. you know, coverage and right. stuff. Right. And, you know, I look at, you know, a lot of activists don't really have a moment where they say, this is my entrance yeah. into activism. But for me, that distinctly was my entrance into activism uh, was Columbus day, yeah. 1992, wow. you know, and, um, and and I think that really kind of triggered something in me. And it took a while to sort of break those those foundational roots in in my church, right. you know, about oh well, we're Jesus people. We care about your spirit, you know. Um, we don't care about you know your current reality. We just yeah. are looking to secure your eternal reality. Right. Um, took a while to break that, but I think really that moment of acknowledging my own humanity. Yeah. And the embodied humanity that I am kind of started putting some cracks in in the walls that I had built to begin seeing other people's humanity, you know? Yeah. So, like, now, if I can use very evangelical language here, the Jim Bear Jacobs of high school age would look at the Jim Bear Jacobs in his 40s now and say, you know what? that dude's not saved (laughs) because I look at, you know, the only thing we ever got political about in that church was abortion and gay rights. Right. 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 It was the only thing we got political about. And I'm like, so here I am now totally affirming a woman's right to choose and the autonomy of her own body. My greatest friends are queer people. Um, You know, and, um, and I just like, like I look at, I look back, you know, I'm like, if that, guy back then knew what he would end up like (laughs) he would be scared out of his mind no i'm right there with you though there's some deacons um, voices that i can still hear in my consciousness (laughs) you lost your salvation Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah you've done backslid that's right that's Mm -hmm. right i'm curious about that that moment because you know you talk about being you and casey Mm-hmm. Being the only the only native kids in the school in, yeah. in a not well there's a there's a funny story to that. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, there's no. a funny story. So <laughs> legitimately me and Casey were the only two natives in the school, right? So 1991, freshman year. It's me and Casey. We're the only two yeah. in the school. Right. 1992, sophomore year, we come in, all of a sudden there's like 70, 80 natives. Really? Because here's what happens. In the summer between 91 and 92, the movie Dances with Wolves comes out. And now this is, this is, you know, and we laugh, but understand this is how it works. contextually, yeah. this is the first positive depiction of natives 
And don't get me wrong, Dances with Wolves is not a good movie. Right. You know, and the people listening to this are going to be like, what the hell is Dances with Wolves, right? Because <laughs> it's so, such a dated. Yeah. But it's not a good movie because it's dripping with white saviorism and yes, all right. of this stuff. Yes, but right. this is the first depiction of Native people in a positive light. Mm-hmm. And now you had all of these white people who have these stories of, you know, of Cherokee grandmothers and all this stuff. And now they're like, oh, I'm Native too, you know? And I'm like, get out of here. You ain't no Native. You, yeah. you, can, you know? Yeah. If you yeah. can't, you can't name a grandmother, you don't get to call yourself Native. <laughs> I want to go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> that's, it's that's great. Cool. So, yeah. Okay, I'll ask it. Um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm just curious about because I think about one of the things I've thought about recently is how difficult it is for for people who are not already surrounded by a community that can support kind of an about face or a disruption that they mm-hmm. might be convicted that they need to bring. Um, and so as I think about, you know, you and Casey being the only kids for a while in this environment, which was not only a, you know, a white supremacy, you know, white, just a white environment, but also with the evangelicalism. I'm just curious about what got you to, you know, what, 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 and and the reason I'm asking this, let me say this is because there are young adults who will hear this, who are in a similar position in mm-hmm. a diff- in different ways. And sometimes it can be so difficult to f- give yourself the authorization to go ahead and disrupt. Yeah. So I'm just curious, you know, if what you would, where you would place that, you know, yeah. how, how did you get there? knowing that there was not already a community that was holding space. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So my, one of the ways I describe myself is I was a Christian before I was native. And what I mean by that is my dad is native. My mom is not, and they got divorced when I was very young. And so my dad was a minimal influence in my life. Uh, So it's like, it's like my native identity was never hidden from me, but it was never, I never had the opportunity to, explore that and embrace that you know other than like christmas gatherings and stuff like that when i turned 16 i bought my first car for 250 dollars okay uh 79 monte carlo still remember it great car love that thing (laughs) um but this afforded me the freedom now to go out and visit my grandmother and my relatives because our reservation is 250 to a little over 250 miles away from the Twin Cities. Right. It's in the middle of Wisconsin. Right. And so now I don't have to rely on any one of my relatives, aunts and uncles who are going out to the reservation to give me a ride. I can go out there on my own. Right. And so when I was 16 years old, uh, that summer, I went and spent the whole summer at my grandma's house. Yeah. And this is the first time now where I am like embedded into that world. Yep. And I started noticing you know, the way I think fits in way right. better here than right. it does out there, right. Right. you know? And, um, and so I, like, I would say like that moment of being 16 sort of started me on this, this understanding that there is a uniqueness to my identity as a native person yeah. that is worthy of exploration and embracing. Now, and that was kind of a slow transition because remember, you know, it takes a long time to break those, those foundational ties of churches and everything. Yeah. Um, but when I was in seminary, so I went to Bethel seminary, which is, uh, it's, uh, founded in the Baptist tradition. It's a very white, uh, very again, conservative. Yeah. Uh, but I went there and, um, 
I remember I was in my second or third year and I had a friend who's a black woman, also a student there, who worked in whatever office yeah. traces diversity of student body or tracks the, the diversity of student body, right? And all of these educational institutions track their diversity. It, right. it benefits them to do so. And she came to me, she called me into her office and she said, here, look at this. And she lays this report out in front of me. And it is the statistical breakdown of the student body by race, right? And it looks exactly like you think it would for Bethel. You know, white is overwhelmingly, it's probably like 80 some percent. Then you have African-Americans, you have, you know, Asians, all this. And then it gets all the way down to Native American and it says zero. And here I am, I'm Native here and, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, Gary, you probably understand this as, as a black man, when you're navigating the post-secondary education, you learn to check the box. Absolutely. You always check that box. So mm-hmm. I had checked that Native American box on every form since I was in eighth grade, right. you know? So I knew I had checked the box. Yeah. I knew Bethel knew I checked the box, but I didn't count. This is, this is something that we deal with in statistics. It's called statistical insignificance. When there is not enough of you to sway the data at all, then you just don't get counted. Wow. And so I look at that and I'm like, this means I'm the only Native here. Yeah. And this whole institution, I'm the only Native here. Not just the seminary, but also the whole undergrad right. system. Right. And so then I started... Um, asking some of my more tenured professors uh, in the seminary, hey, have you ever had a Native student come through seminary? And they all said, yeah. And I said, okay, who, who were they? And no one could give me a name. They're just playing the statistics. I've been doing this for 30 years, so you know, I must have had a Native student come yeah. through here. Yeah. So what that told me is in this institution, I'm the only Native right now no one can tell me the last native who ever came here, which tells me that in these professors' times here, you yeah. know, which is not insignificant, we're talking 30 some years, yeah. a native has never had a significant impact on this institution ever. And so I went through this time. That was that was that was a biggest kind of catalyzing moment in my life. Cause I'm like, if I waste this opportunity, yeah. like if they can't name me, right. When I leave here, right. then then this is a wasted opportunity. Right. And so I begin just bringing in a Native perspective to every class. And honest to God, there were times I was so obnoxious about it. I was, an, I was annoying myself, <laughs> right? Because we'd be talking about Pauline epistles and I'd be like, well, you know, in a native kind of understanding <laughs> and it just everything to bring it in. You know, I yeah. had a professor who every time I raised my hand, he would say, all right, Jim Bear, what do the natives think about this? Right. You know, <laughs> And so but what I was doing is I was I was not, this, this wasn't an, an ego thing. I was making a mark for native yes. people saying you need to understand there is a worldview out there that you not even considering you're not even considering you know because i saved so my undergrad is in pastoral theology and then my 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 seminary degree is also in christian theology i saved all of my theology textbooks from my undergrad and my seminary training all of them and then one day after i graduated i went through all of my textbooks on theology looking for a native perspective 
my exposure, if I, if I only gave, you know, ate what was fed to me, my exposure through what is that? Say at least six years of, of theological training from a native perspective was five paragraphs. And three of those paragraphs were written by white people about native, you know? So I had two paragraphs of native, actual native perspective. Right. Right. And I was like, I'm like, this is, this this is so wrong. Yeah. What was your journey from there? How did it lead to the location that you're in? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in seminary, well, you guys know this, when you're in seminary, you become theology nerds. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was a theology nerd and I can't remember if it was when I was in seminary or just after seminary, right. <laughs> I went to um, an AAR gathering, which is the American Academy of Religions, which is just for those of you who don't know what it is, you're not missing much, but it's just where theology nerds go <laughs> to, 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 and to, they talk, to nerd out. And it was hosted here in this, in the twin cities. And I went and there was this offsite workshop offering that was, um, an, an indigenous tour of sacred sites, and it was led by um, a Dakota gentleman. And so I went on this tour, and we visited sites around the Twin Cities. Yeah. That these are sites I had, you know, like I grew up in the Twin Cities, um, lived here my whole life. These are sites that I knew about, but never knew the indigenous story. Right. And you got to understand, I'm an Indian kid growing up here so like if you know and and, you know gary it's like for you growing up you know when black history month comes around all of a sudden your neuroreceptors are opened up a little bit and you're going to glom onto that history so if i get all the way through public schooling and i don't know the indigenous story it means it was never talked about right because i would have perked up and captured that so i felt this sense of shame that here i am i'm i'm a you know, I'm an adult. I've lived here my whole life. I'm a native kid yeah. or I'm a native person. And I don't know the story of whose land I live on and yeah. I occupy. And so I decided, you know what, that, that has to change. And so I started um, this organization called Healing Minnesota Stories. And I started it in 2011, so 10 years ago. And um, one of the things we, like, like our goal is to take the native voice, which has been either intentionally or unintentionally overlooked and bring it out of the shadows and prioritize that. Um, And so one of the things I've done is uh, I've started now with permission from Dakota people conducting these sacred sites tours. They've been running for 10 years. They're uh, at times they feel too successful because I'm very busy doing those, but it's great. I love doing it. And I tell people, you know, look, you lived here 50, 60 years. You owe it to the indigenous people who were here before you to at least know their story. That's right. Uh, I've been doing that. And that's, you know, I've just been building on that work yeah. over 10 years. And sorry, Justin, I totally lost track of your actual question in there. But well, I, no, that's, no, that's great. great. And it's just how that brought you kind of the trajectory of how you got to where you currently are, are working. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so currently I'm the co-director of racial justice for the Minnesota Council of Churches. And um, when I started doing this, um, even starting Healing Minnesota Stories, um, 
even starting those sacred sites tours, like I said, they started in 2011. I honestly thought that by the end of 2012, I would have exhausted the interest yeah, yeah. and I would have to find something else to do. Yeah. Like I honestly treated it back then as this is really cool and I love doing this, yeah. but I'm going to run out of people to tell this story to. Right. And we have just built, you know, and I run, I run anywhere from 1100 to 1500 people a year through these sacred sites tours. Um, and it's just, it's just built. And so I never approached this as a vocation, like, a vocation, right? Um, like in the sense of this was going to be my job. Yeah. I mean, I treated it in a vocation, like I felt very called to do this, right. but I never, I never imagined like this was going to pay my bills and yeah. like, this is going to be my career and my job. Um, but you know, I built this thing, this, this organization yeah. and the Minnesota council of the churches came to me and said, what would it look like if we brought this into the Minnesota council and you had a statewide audience, you know, and you had, wow. and I'm like, and, and so like, literally I, I stepped into a position, the director of racial justice that didn't exist before. Okay. Like MCC created that position specifically for me. Yeah. And so it's like, it's like, I get to do this now. I get to build this whole thing brand new. Yeah. So I'm not, you know, I'm not filling anyone's shoes, right? right? I'm wearing my own shoes yeah. doing this work. You know, a lot of times when I, when we think about vocation, um, especially if you're talking about people who are wanting to come into vocation, right? Because it's easy for me or easy, easier for Justin to look in hindsight and be able to understand how that story fits together, but also to understand how it's not, it doesn't always, it's not always something that we necessarily choose or can step into that already exists or even create something uh, intentionally, you know, like if you would have done that knowing this is what I wanted to become, but sometimes it's, it's almost like by accident, mm -hmm. right? And it's yeah. being open to the possibilities. And there's something about doing work that your soul comes alive for, you know, um, even if you're doing it for play or even if you're just doing it because it feels, it feels right. There's something, there's some connection there. Uh, that 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 I think is significant. So yeah, I wanted to just weigh in on that. Yeah, like yeah. the spirit leads, like the, right. Like when there's an opportunity in front of you, and the spirit leads you to. Yeah, absolutely. And I become totally comfortable actually using that language, absolutely. right? Um, like like I truly believe that that there is there is a spirit leading this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and the the comfort level I've come to um, is. There are times in this work where I feel totally overwhelmed yeah. when I think about like, like even at the, the Minnesota council about what we're trying to build for the future. Right. And I'm like, wow, that is an overwhelming, you know, thing we're trying to build. Yeah. But uh, I have experienced those times of overwhelming right. before and just been amazed at who spirit brings to help the work along. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm um, sometimes I wonder if I'm like the best director because yeah. I'm a dreamer. I'm a visionary. I suck at administration. <laughs> I suck at the day to day. Uh, if you get a return email from me, it means I must really like you, you know, because um, I'm bad at that. Yeah. But um, 
I've been comfortable, like I've learned to become comfortable existing in this, in this atmosphere of dreaming and envisioning and trusting that if that's the way the spirit is leading, then people will come to pick up those pieces that I don't, that I don't have. That you can't foresee or necessarily Mm -hmm. prepare for, right? Um, That, I appreciate you saying that about just, just being explicit about spirit leading and, Mm -hmm. You know, I want to transition us a little bit to the ground we stand on and, and the spirituality that is a part of that, that we kind of that we breathe, but that some, especially young adults who might be spiritual, but not religious, might have not had an opportunity to make sense of in their own on their own terms because of coming out of this tradition or whatever it might be. Um, <clears throat> and specifically, the theme for this conversation we're hoping to invite listeners to see themselves as a part of a long path or long trajectory of justice work with foundations laid by our ancestors and continuing to this day. Um, one of the things that Justin and I were talking about before you got here and something that that um, I find interesting and, and is a fortunate development um, is that it's beginning to come up more when we talk and have conversations about ancestors, especially in the context of spirituality, um, the way in which African cosmologies or Native Native American or Native theologies or Eastern religious perspectives are beginning to uh, ha- have more space to offer insight into who are we as human beings? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, how does the how does it all fit together? What is the work that we're actually doing from a spiritual or theological perspective outside of the framework of Western theology yeah. or Eurocentric theology? Um, so I'm curious from your standpoint as a member of the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican Nation and as an activist working to raise public awareness of American Indian causes and injustices, what are a few of, of your beliefs um, or unique insights? Uh, that you would want people to embrace or at least consider yeah. that you believe could contribute to a more just world. Yeah. I, I like that you, you kind of bring in the language of ancestors mm-hmm. in this. Um, and it's, I, I don't want to minimize this, but this kind of ancestry research is a fad right now, yes, right? The 23 and me and yeah. the genetic testing <laughs> and all of this. Um, but what I have noticed, and I want to encourage you because, you know, you're going to be in conversations where folks are talking about their ancestors and stuff. Um, one thing I've noticed over the, the past few years as people have these conversations um, and, you know, they're, they get new knowledge about their own genetic history and their ancestry. Almost invariably, white people when they speak about their ancestors, they use third person language. So it's they, them, you know, they came over at what, you know, whatever year. What I've noticed, um, black people, depending on what I'll call their proximity to colonization, will use first person or sometimes they use third person. But um, I think for, for, Black people who are actively working about decolonizing and building something new have found this, this notion of, of using first people. So it's, we came over, we were at this plantation. We were, I don't know a native person who uses third person language when they talk about their ancestors. We, 
always use use right. we. Right. Now that's a generalization, right. but um, that's kind of what I found to be true. And what I what I what I what I think that reveals is for indigenous people and for black people who are building their new future. We are not alone. We recognize uh, we bring our ancestors into the room. They're here present with us. Um, And with white people, I think they're trapped by this American ethic of individual achievement, um, American exceptionalism, like this, you know, I mean, the cliche is pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? And you're like, oh, you don't even recognize that a black person built those boots and a native person, you know, you know. um, So there is no your own bootstraps, but that's the ethic that white people live under. And so, of course, why would you, why would you give credit to your ancestors for anything that you have accomplished, right? Um, And then also, especially because, you know, you have a whole lot of white people who do research into their own um, family history and they discover things that they definitely want to distance themselves from, mm-hmm. you know, so you come across someone who has slave ownership right. in their ancestry. Right. Of course, it's going to be, they own yeah, slow slaves, you know. And, and you know. I think even to your point, even within the broader conversation about you know, this tension between <clears throat> European and different ethnicities of European, but this history, right, this this history of whiteness coupled with the well intentions of of a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that also speaks to kind of the impulse to to say they, because it's like, I am not them, right? I I love all people, you know, Mm -hmm. For better or for worse, but just does that dynamic I think comes comes to play, or at least comes to mind when I think about your yeah. on that. One of the things like we need to understand, and this this is a native understanding, right? Okay. So I'm sure you've heard of the concept of the seven generations, mm-hmm. right? And very loosely and broadly, that concept is is that the decisions that I face today, that I make today, must not only be good for me in the present day, but also must be good for the seven generations that, that follow me. But that also works in reverse. So as we encounter truth and as we tell stories that bring about healing from a native perspective, we are breaking the historical trauma and we are healing the seven generations that follow us but we are also giving voice to and healing the seven generations that preceded us. Yeah, yeah. In one of my classes, we read uh, Water Bordis' book, Salsa, Soul, and Spirit, and there's an exercise in there from, written by one of the native authors of the book in challenging people to, to introduce themselves by talking about, by identifying their great-great-grandparents. Mm-hmm. So we have the students do this. It's interesting for many of the students, but particularly the white students, have struggle with it. But when they go back to their grandparents and ask these questions... What's interesting that came out of it, particularly in my class this year, is that they went home and their grandparents were so delighted to share these stories. And they had these moments of deep breakthrough with family history that they never knew. Yeah. And I sort of think that, that what you're talking about, I think, has wisdom for other groups in terms of healing yeah. some of that white right. isolationism mm-hmm. and alienation. Right. Uh, because yeah. there's a potential to bring people 
back into dialogue yeah. and, back, yeah. and heal some of those mm-hmm. rifts. And so, you know, that really testified for me how just witnessing how powerful that was yeah. in my students' lives. Um, in students of color also, mm-hmm. like, reconnecting. But right. for them, it was a more familiar and, and right. less of a new mm-hmm. concept. Right. Right. Yeah, um, and I think what, Justin, kind of what you're describing <laughs> is I think particularly your white students are coming face to face with the reality that whiteness cost them something that has never been named before. And so what does whiteness cost you? Well, it costs you your history. It costs you your lineage. It costs you your heritage. It costs you your ancestors because all of that had to be cut off for you to buy into whiteness. And there's, don't get me wrong, there's definite benefits for buying into whiteness, but that cost is deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think recognizing that cost is part of, what motivates people to, to move, move in different ways yep. in the world. Yeah, yeah. When you think about your, your theological and cultural perspective, and I'll give you an example, um, going back, and because I grew up similarly, right? I, I, I grew up, um, I, was, I was in a culture that looked like me. I had an extended family, but the schools that I went to, didn't reflect that always mm-hmm. you know it, there was it was depending on you know the year or whatever but we were always a gross minority uh, wherever we, wherever I was and and theologically the same thing when I went to seminary um, I was never conversing with African traditional religion or yeah I took one class in undergrad but it took realizing what what I was missing and then going back and trying to reclaim that right and African cosmology has given me language and given me a way to think about um, what I've frustratingly noticed. A lot of um, white academics are discovering this this notion of relationality and in, uh, in, in the critique of individualism and understanding that African traditional religion assumed that, has assumed that yeah. we're relationally bound together, right? Mm-hmm. I say that because it, it helps me to kind of reset and, and frame the way I look at the world, where if my assumption is, first, that not that we're individuals, but that we're so bound up together that that actually changes the metaphor that I use to understand what social transformation might be or what justice looks like. So I'm just curious if you could offer... I don't know, a metaphor or some kind of way to, to offer a way to conceive of how things fit together that helps to kind of ground how you engage your work. Forgive me, I don't know which African language the, the word Ubuntu yeah. comes out of, but the the notion that I am because we are, yes. right? Yeah. For the state of Minnesota, the indigenous people are the Dakota. Um, they have... Uh, what is referred to as metakweasan, which means we are all related, yes. all my relatives. Um, and so, um, and that's not a unique thing to Dakota people. Ojibwe people greet people as relatives. It's almost a, I don't want to say it's a universal native thing, but I've never been in a native community where this concept of we are all related um, is not part right. of that. Right. And when we say we are all related, um, it's not just crossing actual family lines. It's not just crossing racial lines. It's not just crossing gender lines, but it's crossing species lines. So when I say we're all related, 
I'm talking about the trees outside. Yeah. I'm talking about yeah. the animals that crawl, the birds that fly, the fish that swim. We are all related. And yeah. so it places humanity within creation, yeah. not over creation. Yeah, that's good. Right. That's good. And, um, and I think that's where Christianity gets it wrong. Um, and it gets it, it gets it wrong, not because our own texts don't point to the fact that we are all related. Right. It's that for what, 1700 years now, we've been reading the text through a lens of power and imperial eyes. And so this, this is what I, this is what gets me in trouble with a lot of more conservative Christians, particularly white Christians is I will tell them, I'll say, you know what? You open up your Bible, but it's not written for you. You can't know what it says because the narrative of scripture is a narrative of an oppressed people that are finding their identity, navigating a system that is designed to oppress them. And here you are, living in Arden Hills, Minnesota, you know, white suburb, you got two cars, you got generational wealth, you got all of this, you got white skin, nothing about this system oppresses you. So you can't, you can't sing the songs of liberty that come out of the gospels because you've never been in chains. Your only hope as a Christian, this is what I say, the only hope of the American church, and when I say American church, I'm talking about kind of the white American church. The only hope of the American church is to do away with evangelism as it stands right now. Do away. Don't put black people in your urban missions program. Don't put native people in your home missions program. What you need to do instead of what you've done for 500 years is you've gone to them with the Bible and said, let me tell you what this says. Now you're only going to select the passages that keep us enslaved and oppressed. You're going to tell us what that says. Okay. Instead of doing that, you need to come to these communities. Sure. Come with your Bible, but come with it open and say, will you sit down with me? Will you tell me what this says? Because I can't know the songs of freedom that are in here because I've never been in chains. Yeah. Well, and, and you think the, about when Jesus announces his ministry, when he announces, his, where does he go? He goes to the liberation text of Isaiah 61. Yeah, yeah. The spirit of the sovereign the Lord is on me. Right. Is he anointed me to set the captives free, right. to release those in bondage. Right. I mean, the whole gospel is encompassed in liberation <laughs> and you can't know it because you've never been in chains. Well, and the power, the power. That was a little uh, preachy. No, that's okay. <laughs> but that, but it, it just, it, it speaks to the power of how we can interpret a text through how, the, the strength of a lens, mm-hmm. right? And so I think the disruptions that you're bringing and some of the conversations that various communities are trying to have are beginning to kind of chip away at that so that they there can even be the awareness to say, maybe I don't understand what this is saying, yeah. right? Or maybe I'm understanding what this is saying so much on my terms whether knowingly or unknowingly, that it's completely, you know, it's transforming what this means. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to kind of transition briefly, just because be mindful of time. But um, and thank you for that. That was helpful, and it connects also to you know coming back to this idea of ancestors. Um, we're familiar with the quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which says, "The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice." Right. But we also know that it doesn't bend on its own that we're responsible for bending it and that there are persons who have come before us who have participated in bending it to the point where to help us get where we are now Mm -hmm. and laying a foundation for us to build on that work. Um, 
As you think about your own vocational journey, who would you say are the ancestors who have bent the arc in particular ways that have set the stage for the work you're doing? Yeah. And you can answer, you can think about this both in terms of of those ancestors that are more indirectly have formed or influenced you and those kind of mentors, perhaps, that mm-hmm. have directly informed the work. Yeah. I struggle to use the word ancestors when I mention this person. And, and if, if time allows, I'd actually like to highlight two yeah. people. I have a mentor in my life named Bob. Bob's a 67-year-old Dakota man. Bob calls himself a Christian. Bob set foot in the doors of a church maybe four or five times in his life, right? Bob had but what the evangelical world calls this salvation encounter. Jesus came to Bob in a sweat ceremony, you know, a traditional indigenous sweat ceremony. And I remember one time, this is 10 years ago, and at this time, I'm still like, I'm, I'm pretty new out of seminary and I'm wrestling with this. Okay, I want to honor and live into my traditional ancestry, but also like, um, I am a Christian yeah. and I want to. And so do I live this world where those are just this life where those two worlds are just separate? Right. And Bob invited me to a pipe ceremony one time. Uh, very early on, we had just met very recently. Uh, and, you know, a, a pipe ceremony, you have the chinupa, you have the pipe, you fill it, you go, you say some prayers and you fill it seven times with seven little pinches of what's called chinchacha goes into the pipe. And um, I'm standing there, I'm right next to Bob and I'm standing there and he's moving in and out of, between Dakota and English as he's saying these prayers and I remember um, when he puts that last pinch of chinchacha, that seventh pinch of chinchacha into the bowl of the pipe, he just, and I, I swear, I, he said it like he whispered it. And so I'm positive that I'm the only person in that whole circle that heard him say it. He said, and we fill this pipe in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I, my mind went, forgive me, but this is literally my mind went, holy shit. Like, can you even do that? Like, is that possible? And I'm going back through my seminary days, like, okay, how do I, how do I, like, how do I consult Bonhoeffer and Luther and all these people to get to a point where I can be there? Bob went to the ninth grade. That's the most education he has. Bob doesn't even know that this is an argument, right? And I'm like, that's what I want to be. That's that's where I want to arrive at, where my worlds can meld together and give full expression of my identity in a seamless way that I don't even give a shit about the arguments that say I can't do it, right? right? Yeah. That is so rich. Yeah. That is so rich. To imagine not even having to contend with you know that that kind the kind of demarcated mm-hmm. assumptions, but you know it's one thing to have to resist them. It's another thing to, to reform to the point where you just you're free. That yeah, I uh, when when we talk about ancestors, um, you know, there's uh, there there's a a saying that we've all heard. You know, if I have seen further than any other person it's because i've stood on the shoulders of giants right right? and this is just a way to give honor and tribute 
to those sometimes named and sometimes nameless people who came before you in the fight and struggle. Right. And um, for me, that saying takes on a different meaning. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most influential person in my life was my grandmother. She lived to the age of 95. She passed away five years ago. And um, I loved going out to visit my grandmother. We drive all around the reservation and she'd just tell me stories. And one day we're driving around, just me and her in the car and we're driving by and our reservation is in the big woods of Wisconsin, which means um, it used to be uh, the timber companies would come in and pull out timber. So crossing the main roads of our reservation are all these, what we call old logging roads, which is where the old, you know, back in the forties, you know, thirties, forties, the logging trucks would go back and they would haul our lumber out. And we crossed by, you know, they're almost non, you can't drive over them anymore. They're all overgrown, but you can see the the scars in the land where they were. And we driving past my grandma and I are driving past this one uh, logging road that I wouldn't even notice. And she just says, down there is where we escaped when I was a young girl. And I'm like, well, wait, 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 you hold up. Just hold like, you can't, you can't. Like, Grandma, you don't drop that line and then not go into the story. And so she told me this story. Like, and I pulled over on the side of the road so I could just listen to her story and focus on the story. And she told me, so my grandmother was born in 1922. Her mother died shortly after giving birth to my grandmother. And so my grandmother was actually sent to live with um, another female relative that we've all, all of us now have just known as Aunt B. And that's not Aunt B, like B-E-A. It's just the letter B. And no one knows what the B stands for, right? (laughs) Aunt B was deaf and mute. And Aunt B was essentially the domestic servant for a man camp, these logging camps that would hopscotch around the reservation. And so this is the environment that my grandmother as a very young child is growing up in. Okay. And what my grandmother could not bring herself to actually give voice to, but what I've pieced together is the foreman of this man camp was a very possessive, jealous um, type. And you can imagine, yes, Aunt B is the domestic help for the camp. But when you are one of two or three women in a camp of 70 to 80 men, you know what's happening after dark, right? And my grandmother's growing up in this. And one night in the middle of the night, uh, my grandmother is woken up. She was, she said she was probably about five or six years old. She was woken up by a hand over her mouth and it was Aunt B. Um, And like I said, Aunt B was deaf and mute. So they communicated to each other in this quasi sign language where they would write out letters and whatnot on the the palm of their hands. And that's how they talked. So they were able to talk in total silence and complete darkness just through touch. And Aunt B says, it's not safe for you here anymore. We need to get you out of here. And so my grandma tells me this story. They quickly kind of pack up her belongings and they're being as silent as they can because all the men are asleep and they don't want to wake any of them up because this foreman and a lot of the men in there are very possessive and and jealous and they sneak out of the camp and aunt B carried my grandmother on her back and they're, they're walking along the road because it was, 
you know, that was the easy path to walk. But every time my grandmother's job as a five-year-old girl was to anytime she heard a car anywhere in the proximity, even before you could see the lights or anything, she would tap Aunt B on the shoulder because Aunt B couldn't hear. And then they would then scurry down into the ditch and pull the bushes and stuff and they would hide until the car would go by. And so this is, they're making their escape. And I asked grandma, I said, okay, so how far did Aunt B carry you? And she said, well, I'll show you. It's, you know, we'll, we'll drive by it. And so I watched, you know, um, I checked my odometer from where we left to where we ended up. And um, it was six miles that Aunt B carried my grandmother into the cover of darkness in the middle of the night, every, you know, hiding in the ditch every time a car came by because they were worried that that foreman was going to wake up and then come out and look for him hiding in the ditch six miles to another relative's house that they could my grandmother could stay and then I asked I said okay so what what did Aunt B do then you're now at another relative's house what did Aunt B do and my grandmother said well she turned around and went back and that did not sit right with me I could not find a rationality or a justification for why, you know, right. you have your freedom. Right. You walk six miles carrying a five-year-old child on your back. You now have your freedom. You're safe. Why in the hell would you go back? Right. And that question stayed with me until I started thinking about the context of when this takes place. So my grandmother, five years old, we're talking 1927. This is a time when Indian children across this country are being ripped away from their families by social workers and adopted out to white families and anything, anything could label you as an unfit parent or guardian. And that child would be taken from you. And the number one thing that would label you as an unfit parent is if you could not show a verifiable income to support that child. And so I'm thinking about this. Aunt B not only brings my grandmother on her back to safety, but to ensure that she is going to stay with our family and that our narrative is going to continue in essence to ensure that I would exist today. She went back into her own oppression. She went back into her own hell so that those social workers wouldn't come. Because in the 1920s, we're talking 40% of Indian kids were being taken away from their their homes. Grandma, if there was no income that shows that grandma's being supported, grandma absolutely is being taken out of that home. And she's going to end up on a white farm somewhere doing domestic chores, you know? Wow. And so... You know, I think about that, um, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, that's not true for me. I'm not, I w- I'm not standing on shoulders. I was carried on her back. Right. This giant of a woman who walked back into her own hell to ensure this is that seven generations. Sometimes we have to make difficult decisions that don't sit well with us in the here and now to ensure that our story continues. Wow. The, the imagination that also has to be at work in the midst of that to 
to think about <clears throat> seven generations, mm-hmm. this world will be different enough where if I do this now, they won't have to do this. Yeah. Again. Um, that's, mm-hmm. that's powerful. Yeah. Cause you can imagine like, like, you know, when you're growing up in that oppression, when you're growing up in that, like, and that's all, you know, like, this is why, this is why when you go to black churches, when you go to native celebrations, um, like the number one thing that that sings its voice is hope. Mm-hmm. This is all we have. You know, young people today are expressing, understandably and reasonably, anxiety about what will happen. What world will their children be born into? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we've been talking about is that we'd love to hear about. You know, is what do you envision or what advice might you have for young people now um, that would have the greatest positive impact on? the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, seven generations that who have not yet been born, but will come from, yeah. from this current generation. I think there's a shakedown coming. There's a reckoning coming. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I think back, so growing up in the Pentecostal church, the book of Acts plays deep in our theology. Right. And there's a passage in the book of Acts where um, this new church these new disciples these new spirit-filled individuals are being talked about by someone else and this person describes the situation and says those that have turned the world upside down have come here okay and as a pentecostal you know we were like yeah that's us we're going to turn the world upside down you know and all this well guess what the church is not turning the world upside down the church is living into the capitalistic individualistic system but the world will be turned upside down because there is no way to survive in this system right just no way um so the world she'll turn herself upside down when as that happens I think those indigenous peoples, and by when I this when I say indigenous peoples, I'm ta- not just talking about the Native Americans here in North America, but I'm talking about this indigenous worldview and mindset globally. Yeah. Those that we already exist in a communal world versus an individualistic yeah. world, those indigenous communities will be the salvation of the church because there is no other way to live. You know, and you think about, so 2016, when um, Standing Rock is taking place, uh, the reason Standing Rock was met with such harsh, violent resistance by law enforcement, by corporate America, by all of this, was not because they were really adamant about pushing a pipeline through. It was because at Standing Rock, you had anywhere from eight to 12,000 native people out there showing the world that a different way is possible. And corporate America cannot exist if we firmly understand and lean into this reality that a different way is possible. And so, of course, they're going to release the dogs and they're going to re- you know, open up the water cannons and they're going to tear gas and rubber bullet because God forbid the masses understand that a different way is possible. It's like that scene from A Bug's Life. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Where like the grasshoppers are the bullies, you know, who are the status quo. And there's a moment where the ants realize, wait a minute, we far outnumber the grasshoppers. Yeah. yeah. 
Like we can create a different world for ourselves free from their oppression. Yeah. How can young adults who want to participate in that new world, regardless of where they are situated right now, what traditions they come from or where they're living into, but how can they, how can they be an active participant in bringing about that world? Yeah. Whatever, you know, we can imagine it. Yeah. You know, um, in many ways, the young kind of millennial and Gen Z generation are far better situated Mm -hmm. for this than than us Xers. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what your generation is, but I'm, I'm, I'm an Xer. Um, because, you know, our generation bought into the, the fallacy that the way forward is to build yourself wealth, to attain status, right? To do all of this. So you want to buy your home and you want the toys to go with your home and you want all this. And I just think that this young generation is just seeing the emptiness of those pursuits. And it's not about bowing to the corporate ideals of amassing wealth, um, you know, uh, but it's about how can we live in community? How can we move from a scarcity mindset, which puts us in competition to an abundance mindset that says, you know what, the earth she takes care of creation. She, she creates enough already to feed everybody. And that's like, that's the reality that nobody wants to tell you is I don't remember if this still holds true, but um, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, we grew enough food in the state of California to feed the entire world, the whole world. And like, why are why are what is it twelve thousand kids a day dying of starvation? Because yeah, yeah. we let them. Yeah. That's why. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think you know, like I said, there's a reckoning coming, and I think these young people are uniquely situated. Yeah, to lead that charge. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim Bear, um, th- this conversation could easily go off for right? hours. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I know, right? I want to weigh in. I'm like, I'll just sit on it. But no, (laughs) but thank you so much for being with us tonight. Um, There's so much wisdom in this conversation. And um, and I I hope that you'll continue to do the work you're doing. I know you will. And that we continue to collaborate in the future. Um, And we just, I think this is a really valuable thing to lift up for young adults. And I I think you're absolutely right. Um, They're poised to take the next several steps into a new reality that doesn't by default live into the things that we, that they asked us to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Thank you so much. For My pleasure. This has been enjoyable.